Alright, um, I think I'm going to put two more hotels, one on Boardwalk and one on Park Place. What do you need more hotels for? You already have three on those properties. I know, but if you got it, flaunt it, and I have it. There you go. It's all about consumption, baby. You've already cleaned me out. Hey, how about a loan so I can get back in this game? <laughs> all right, listen, Lehman Brothers, I'm not the federal government. And I really don't feel comfortable lending out money to someone who I know can't pay it back. <clears throat> it's your turn. In a railroad, which I will gladly buy, which now means I own all the railroads and all the utilities. Nice. Now your railroads can ship the coal to your power plants and keep warming up the planet. <laughs> but that will leave your beachfront hotels underwater. Good business strategy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Steve, it's your go. Between your hotels and your railroads, my best bet is going to jail. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, for many people in this country, that is a valid option. Well, there's always free parking. No, I'm going to buy that soon. <laughs> I would just go ahead and roll with Steve. Do I have to? Yeah. Yeah. And I would be glad to take you anywhere of your choosing on any of my railroads. I'm sure you'd love that. However, if you somehow miss your train, I would be happy to put you up in one of my fine luxury hotels. You're all heart. Mm-hmm. Come on, roll, man. <clears throat> Want to roll a four? Nine. Nine. And then I get 200 for passing go. Come on. Four. Come on. Four. Come on. Eight. 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 Oh. Yes! Yes! Boardwalk. Oh, well, I so hung in sad. there for a while. <laughs> At least I had Baltic and Mediterranean till the end. Now they're mine, though, so if you could. Thanks. I'll throw you $6. Thank you. <clears throat> hmm. See, I think now I'm going to tear down those slummy apartment buildings you had there and put up some really nice high-rise luxury condos. Or maybe a stadium with lots and lots of expensive box seats. <laughs> Options, you know? <laughs> when you have, being a billionaire is tough. All right. Um, Ian, are you, uh, you going to head out soon? Because your railroads really aren't looking that promising. Yeah, I, I think I'm done. Yes! I am king of the world! Woo! You won. You don't have to rub our noses in. Well, that's the whole point of the game, right? Whoever has the most toys wins. Yeah, but you don't have to be a jerk about it. Not whether you win or lose, it's how you play the game. And whoever said that probably lost. <laughs> I mean, most games, it's, you know, you're, you're okay to play with, but when you gloat about it, you just kill the game, man. Come on, guys, it's Monopoly. The whole point is to monopolize. And I did. It's all about planning your strategy, being aggressive, and kicking your enemy when he's down. Winning isn't everything, true, but losing is really nothing. <clears throat> yeah, well, competition cliches aside, that attitude isn't going to win you many friends. Well, yeah, but now you fear me. You all do. And you'll think twice about challenging me to Monopoly again. You got that right. It'll be a while before any of us want to play anything with you again. <laughs> Seriously? Well, congratulations, sir. Thank you for defeating me. Okay, come on. Goodness sakes, guys. I'm just kidding around. Come on, come sit back down. Geez, I'm just, no one is obviously this greedy in real life. 
get a pizza or something. Come on. Yes. Why don't we go to Rochester? That's really expensive. Sounds like fun. I don't know. I'm pretty tight on cash right now. My dad just lost his job, and my parents think they might actually have to sell the house. Well, the plant that my dad was working at, they just shut it down and sent the operation overseas. What, were they losing money or what? No, they were doing well. Production was up, stock prices were up, and everyone seemed to be doing well. They actually talked about expanding the plant, adding a couple hundred jobs. And then they just decided that they would be able to increase their profit margin if they went and sent the operation overseas. So they just shut the plant down. A couple hundred people lost their jobs, and in our small town, that's really going to hurt. I mean, I don't even know if I'm going to really go back to college next year. I'm so sorry. Some of really weak choices. Now to play another game of Monopoly. <laughs> I think we've had enough of that for one day. Monopoly. How many, anyone here never played Monopoly? I don't see any hands. There were a couple at one of the earlier services. Monopoly is, is, the, um, is the most uh, popular board game, most, the best-selling board game in all the world. It's sold in more than 100 countries and close to 40 different languages. And um, it, it's virtually all over the place. It started in 1904 with a woman named Elizabeth McGee who invented a game that she called the Landlord's Game. And this is a, a replica of the first game she designed, and you might be, be able to understand why it didn't make it. There's no glitz or anything to it, a piece of paper. And it really didn't go anywhere. She gave up on it. Other people who played it, expanded it, adapted it, nothing really took off until in 1933 a man named Charles Darrow got a hold of it, and he, he worked with it and eventually put together this game that he called Monopoly. And um, Darrow uh, copyrighted it. Interestingly enough, he was from Germantown, Pennsylvania, but all of the, the places on the board are in or near Atlantic City, New Jersey, which probably is because he took somebody else's ideas and just adapted it a little bit more to get the game that we now know as Monopoly. He took it to Parker Brothers, and they said, we don't want to do that game. And they said there were 52 design errors to his game, so they rejected it. Well, he wasn't going to be denied. He had a friend who was a printer, and between the two of them, they made 5,000 handmade copies, sold them to a Philadelphia department store. People loved the game. He got to the place where they couldn't keep up with it anymore, so he went back to Parker Brothers, had a little more clout this time, and they said, sure, we'll take that game. And the rest, as they say, is history. In a little over, in the 70-year history of Monopoly, over 200 million Monopoly games have been sold. Now, I can't imagine any board game that has had more different versions created of it than Monopoly has. In addition to five Australian versions, two Canadian editions, 70 British editions... And editions of places all over the world, there are literally hundreds and hundreds of American editions to the game Monopoly. Besides the original edition, which has just gone through a few tweaks different, play, different times through the years, primarily that the box looks a little different, as you can see here, and the board design is a little bit different. But there have been all kinds of them besides that one, and just a sampling of a few of them. There's an American Chopper edition, 
Batman, Best Buy, Boy Scouts of America has an edition. There's an I Love Lucy edition, Lionel Trains, The Muppets, American Idol has an edition. There's one on the National Parks, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, Scooby-Doo, The Wizard of Oz. There's a Star Trek original series edition. There's also a Star Trek The Next Generation edition. There's an edition for each branch of the military for lots and lots of American cities. There's also an edition called Horseopoly, in which the spaces are different breeds of horses, and the jail is a horse trailer. There's, uh, there's games for children. There's Monopoly Junior. And you can never start your children too young on learning the basics of a game like Monopoly, I guess. It's a simplified version. You can also purchase an inflatable Monopoly version. Literally, this is an inflatable version, and you sit on those smaller ones. They're each pictures of each of the corners of the board. And the bigger inflatable, it has the board printed on it, and it's got little places where you can keep your money and your deeds, and you can sit around playing Monopoly on inflatables. But there are even more exotic editions of Monopoly that have been created. In 1941, the British Secret Service commissioned a special edition for its World War II prisoners of war. What the Nazis didn't realize is that these games that were distributed by the International Red Cross had hidden in them maps and compasses and real money and whatever they could get in there to help their prisoners escape. In 1978, the retailer Neiman Marcus manufactured and sold an all-chocolate edition of Monopoly. It cost $600, and every part of it, including the money, the dice, the hotels, the properties, the tokens, the playing board, all of it was edible. I assume you only played that game once. (laughs) And then everybody got sick from eating so much chocolate. There's also a special edition that comes in a locked attaché case made with leather, lined in suede. It features an 18-karat gold, 18-karat gold tokens and uh, houses and hotels, has a rosewood board, street names are written in gold leaf, has emeralds around the chance icon, sapphires around the community chest, has rubies in the brake lights of the car on free parking. Even the dice are encrusted with diamonds. And the money is real, negotiable U.S. currency. It's worth $2 million dollars. So you want to be careful who you're playing with when you pull out that set. And you want to make sure you count everything before everybody leaves. It doesn't matter the edition you play. The game is basically the same. You're trying to acquire wealth through buying and renting and trading properties until you bankrupt all the other players and you own it all. And I suspect that that idea, as much as any other reason is why Monopoly is so popular. It's it's like a magnet to our innate competitive spirit. That spirit that's continually promoted and rewarded by the culture in which we live. I suspect that we all have our Monopoly stories. I certainly do. I've seen this game challenge the strength of a friendship. I have seen this game bring brothers and sisters virtually to blows... I can show you the scars that my sister gave me. (laughs) I've seen this this game create an atmosphere between a husband and wife that honestly, the next day, I wasn't sure they were still going to be married. Monopoly is a competitive game. It's designed that way. And as we understand that, we tend to say, well, that's all bad. 
But competitiveness is not sin. It's it's not all bad. There are many great things that have happened in the world because of a healthy competitiveness. That drive within us to see if something can be better, if something can be different. It, it, It fuels a lot of what goes on in the world. And neither is it a sin to be wealthy or to accumulate possessions. In fact, the argument could be made that that wealth and possessions are the direct result of our willingness to work and labor in this world. So the writer of Proverbs says, Sloth makes you poor. Diligence brings wealth. Make hay while the sun shines? That's smart. Go fishing during harvest? That's stupid. Eugene Peterson's message, he always seems to be able to get the language right. Wealth is not a sin. Many of God's people in the Old Testament are wealthy. In fact, God says to his people in the Old Testament that wealth is often a sign of his blessing. But wealth and the desire for money and the desire to accumulate more and more possessions can lure us, like many things else, many other things, into dangerous places. And so Paul writes to Timothy, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people craving money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. It's that lure of wealth. It's that craving. It's the desire within us in our sinful natures that wants more and more and more. That's where the problem lies. And it's a concern to God that we read through the scriptures and it ought to be a concern to us. It ought to concern us about about the way we accumulate things. The prophet Habakkuk warns how terrible it will be for you who get rich by unjust means. The psalmist concludes, don't try to get rich by extortion or robbery. Proverbs says you insult your maker when you exploit the powerless. Switching price tags and padding the expense account are two things God hates. Wealth created by lying a vanishing mist and a deadly trap. How we obtain wealth is important to God because it reflects something about what's important to us. How we obtain wealth, the, the links and the measures we will go to to get things says something about what drives us deep inside of us. I suspect most of us are not going to be tempted to extortion or robbery or drug trafficking. We're all tempted to cut corners, to not work the way we are paid to, to take advantage of people in order to get a little bit more. I think part of the problem is that we are impatient, that God isn't giving us what we want as fast as we want it. And that impatience just feeds that desire that we wrestle with to get more. More of what we want. Impatience, instant gratification, it's one of our problems. Because we want more and more, and because we don't want to wait for it, we get ourselves into some difficult situations. Maybe we borrow more than we're capable of paying back. Maybe we put too much on our credit cards more than we can handle. And and every month we feel ourselves sinking deeper and deeper into a black hole of debt. 
Granted, sometimes emergencies arise. There are things that happen in life. There are decisions that we make in life. We're borrowing money or using a credit card. It's what we need to do. Sometimes it's all you can do to survive. And I'm not talking about the things that are, are, are living necessities. But those things that, that drive us about just wanting more. Those times when the debt is caused by our desire for more and more and the desire and the impatience to get it now. And so instead of waiting for, for the right time, waiting until we have the funds available, or waiting until God directs us, we jump ahead and get ourselves into difficult circumstances. One of the common criticisms of monopoly is that it takes too long to play. I've seen heads going, yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, um, one Monopoly game can go on for hours, sometimes longer. Hasbro says that, that the uh, longest game of Monopoly ever on, on record lasted 1,680 hours. That's 70 days, two and a half months, playing one game of Monopoly. As an aside, you might also be interested to know that the longest Monopoly game ever played in a bathtub was 99 hours. So that's just one of those trivia things you want to put in the back of your mind, and that's all I'm going to say about that, too. Parker Brothers understands that this is a problem, a marketing problem for them. Because they recognize that there are people who don't want to play Monopoly and therefore are not going to buy Monopoly because it takes too long to play. Ironically, one of the reasons it takes too long is all the house rules that we establish in our homes to play this game. You know, like putting uh, money in the middle that you get when you land on free parking or doubling your, uh, your pay when you land on go. Now, these are just things that just gives people more and more money so they can stay in the game longer and it just keeps stretching the thing out. But we like having those kinds of house rules. And so Parker Brothers realizes there's nothing they can do about it in terms of the house rules, so they've designed some new games that they hope will speed it up. One of them is, has a speed die. And it, the box says that uh, play faster with the new speed die. And it's designed to make the game go along a little more quickly. But the most recent release is even more radical concerning time. It's a new electronic banking edition. And it's advertised, you wheel and deal your way to a fortune even faster using debit cards instead of cash. All it takes is a card swipe for money to change hands. Now you can collect rent, buy properties, pay fines with the touch of a button. It's a new way to play the family classic that's been brought up to date. Might be the only Monopoly game that requires batteries, and as it says on the box, they are not included. Now, the purists don't like these kinds of games, and probably for a variety of reasons. One person said to me, they don't like this particular game because you don't get to feel the money anymore. And we like to feel the money. And when you're playing, when you're playing games, something wrong with making it go faster. I mean, believe me, I have played a lot of long Monopoly games that I wish had been faster. And I understand the desire to speed it up, but the point of the game is not to see how fast you can win, it's just to win. And it's a metaphor, I think, for how we so often think about life. Not only do we want more, we want it now. We want it in the shortest time possible, and we're continually looking for shortcuts. If the drive of our life is to accumulate wealth, to accumulate stuff, it will drive us to do and to make decisions that we will regret. It gets us into trouble. 
But Jesus tells the people who are concerned about gaining and, and hanging on to as much wealth as they possibly can to watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed because one's life does not consist in the abundance of one's possessions. But we keep acting as though we believe that it does. If you play Monopoly very much, you realize that most of the time you're not going to win with the most expensive properties. Park Place and Boardwalk are, are the most expensive, but they're also the most expensive to keep up. Costs a lot more to put hotels and houses on those properties. And, and strategy will tell you that uh, it's not the best way to, base the, to win the game. Park Place is, is one, the second most expensive property and it's one of the least landed on squares. People have done some studies about you know, the laws of probability and rolling dice and where it's positioned on the board and it's one of the least landed on spaces. But there's something about this insatiable desire that we have to want bigger and better, and it feels impressive that we keep going back to those properties. I've seen a dozen times playing with inexperienced people. You know, they, they, their eyes light up when they see Boardwalk and Park Place. They're famous. They're the most expensive. You get the most from them. The potential is great. I'm buying those. Invariably, they end up losing. And we have the drive within us that keeps wanting more and more of the best and the most impressive. There's something about that 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 makes us think we're going to be content with that, but all it really does is blind us. The drive to get more and more in life blinds us about, about how we get there and about so much of life. How often do you, somebody go to Hollywood to find fame and fortune? And they get it. And what do they tell us? I can't go out of my house because there's so many fans out there. I'm sick and tired of this. Leave me alone. That was the whole reason they went. It keeps backfiring. What we, what we think we want often isn't really what we want. A very famous, wealthy, successful actor, James, uh, Jim Carrey, once said, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. But we keep trying and pushing and hoping. And all the while, God is saying, just be content with what you have, with what I've given you. An investment banker was at the pier of a small coastal village one day when a small boat came in, had one lone fisherman on it. Inside the small boat were several large yellowfin tuna Banker complimented the fisherman on his catch. said, how long did it take you to get that? He said, oh, just not very long, a little bit. So why don't you stay out longer and catch more? Well, I've got enough for my family's immediate needs. That's all I went out for. He said, well, what do you do with the rest of your time? No, I, I sleep late. I fish a little. I play with my children. spend time with my wife. I stroll into the village each evening, and I play guitar and sing with my friends. I have a very full and busy life. Banker said, look, I'm a, I'm a Harvard MBA, and, and I can help you. You should spend more time fishing. And with the proceeds, you buy a bigger boat. And then you take the proceeds from the bigger boat, and you buy several boats. And eventually, you have a fleet of fishing boats. And you're selling your catch to the, to the middleman. And, and, and then you realize you can sell it to the processor, and you skip the middleman. Eventually, you open up your own cannery, and you control the product, the processing, and, and the distribution. 
Now, you realize you need to move to out of this village into the city in order to run your business, but it'd be worth it. The fisherman asked, well, how long would that take? He said, oh, probably 15 or 20 years. Well, then what? He said, well, that's the best part. When the time is right, you announce an IPO, sell your company stock to the public, and you make millions. That's great. It's okay, I make millions. Well, then what? And the banker said, then you would retire. Move to a small coastal fishing village where you could sleep late and fish a little and spend some time with your family. You know, getting more is so ingrained into our lives, we can't imagine seeing life any other way. The problem is we get more and we just have to keep getting more because it doesn't give us contentment like we think it will. And we have a tendency to believe that people who are rich, however you define that, that they're the ones who really struggle with this. They're the ones who, who really believe that, that, that have invested themselves in, in getting more and more and more. But the truth is, it doesn't matter where you are on the economic scale. It is a struggle for every one of us. We're all tempted to think, if I had just a little bit more. And this preoccupation with money is a problem no matter how much or how little we have. And, and it, what we forget and what we don't realize is that it blinds us to so much of life. It blinds us to our relationships because when that's, your, when that's what's driving your life, you look at everyone with a perspective of how can they help me get more. And we spend time with people who can and we ignore people who can't. Or we say, I don't understand how, why our family or those who are closest to me can't figure out that I'm doing all this for them. We can't figure it out because we're ignoring them, pushing them aside, we're burdening them, we're distancing ourselves from them. We're blind. You know, monopoly is not just a financial game. Monopoly is a social game. There's a guy who wrote a book called The Monopoly Companion. Probably someone who has a little bit too much time on their hands. But it says he's devoted his life to discerning the obstacles that keep people from realizing their full monopoly potential. Whatever that means. But most, most of his tips have to do with the financial things about the game. But what surprised me was the number one tip that he gives people. The most important advice he can give to anyone is this. Be the kind of player other people want to sit next to during the game. Be the kind of player other people don't mind losing to. You can't win Monopoly without trades and deals, and that takes cooperation. And if you're the kind of obnoxious person like we saw in the skit, people don't want to make deals with you. People don't trust you. I've seen games where, where five or six people will band together to gang up on the one obnoxious person. And the point of the game is not for them to win, it's to see if that person will lose. Nobody wants to help them. Nobody wants to make deals with them. I asked some, some people here in the church, if an opponent didn't quite have enough to pay the debt that they owed, do you let them go or do you make them give up everything and leave the game? You know what the answer was? It depends on who it is. It's about compassion. That's what, that's what you do with it, driving 
you, you cut yourself off from people. Because all you can see is that that person is either going to help me get more or hinder me. But the strategy that God's looking for is what the scriptures call grace. It's, it's playing the game of life with grace. It's cultivating a gracious spirit with other people. If you have an obsession with stuff, an obsession with getting more, the last thing you want to think about is grace and graciousness. And all we've got for people is what's left over. And that's why when we get to the end of this parable we read this morning, Jesus says, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. And who will get what you've prepared for yourself? There's nothing left if you haven't developed that kind of spirit. But ultimately, the great tragedy of this drive to accumulate more and more is that it blinds us to the importance of our relationship with God. All the stuff that we yearn for keeps pushing God to the periphery of our lives. And the struggle leaves us blind and deaf and desensitized to the promptings of God on our lives. In the parable of the soils, Jesus says that the thorny ground represents those who hear and accept the good news. But all too quickly, the the message is crowded out by the cares of this life and the lure of wealth. So no crop is produced. The 52nd Psalm says, look at what happens to the mighty warriors who do not trust in God. They trust their wealth instead, and they grow more and more bold in their wickedness. This yearning for more can't help but distance us from God, who wants to be close to us. And I suspect that in a time of economic crisis like we're going through, the natural inclination is to say, we don't know what tomorrow is going to hold, so we better hang on to as much as we can, and we better amass as much as we can, because we don't know what's coming. And in the mindset of, I need more, that makes perfect sense. But in the mindset of Christ, it doesn't matter whether the economy is down or up. Do we trust Christ or do we not? Is Christ at the center or is he not? When the the economy goes in the tank, do we still trust Christ to take care of our needs? When the economy is exploding, Do we still trust Christ to take care of our needs? If you want an indicator, it's not the only indicator, it's a pretty good indicator, of the health of your relationship with God, how are you handling money and possessions? Are you enamored even subtly with with getting more? And I'm not talking about just a, a healthy interest in earning, but that obsession with bigger and faster and better. You take advantage of people to get what you want. Are you generous or are you giving? How do people see you? Stingy? You tend to think that of how you can give or how you can get. Of how you can continually release whatever you have at the promptings of God. Or are you focused on grasping everything you can despite the promptings of God? Ultimately, You have to come to understand that nothing on this earth is going to bring us satisfaction and contentment. Because we were made for something that this earth simply cannot offer us. And if we think we can, we're playing a game, playing the game of life 
when it wasn't intended to be played. And in the end, it will always disappoint us. And this is Jesus' point as he comes to the end of the parable. This man is condemned not because he owns stuff or because he's wealthy, but because of all the st- because all the stuff is more important to him than God is. Because his life is centered and focused and directed to getting stuff and hoarding stuff at the expense of his relationships, particularly his relationship with God. And so Jesus summarizes the parable: a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, not have a rich relationship with God. The 1993 movie, Cool Runnings, is based on the true story of the Jamaican bobsled team that competed in the 1988 Calgary Olympics. Doris, who is the captain of the team, has trained his entire life to run the 100-meter dash at the Summer Olympics and to win a gold medal, medal as his father had years before. But tragically, at the Jamaican trials, a runner trips him and some other runners and three of the most promising competitors go down and and lose their hope of Olympic glory. But Doris is determined to go to the Olympics. Eventually, he hears about a gentleman on the island, an American named Irv Blitzer. He's a former bobsled gold medalist in 1972. Blitzer is played by John Candy, has been banned from the Olympic Games, and his medals taken away because they discovered he had cheated. And uh, he just says sort of whiling away his life on this island. They find him, and they ask him to help, but he doesn't want to help them. But they're desperate, and eventually they keep bugging him until he consents. And he spends months training these four Jamaicans who call him Sled God to ride a bobsled. They fund their own way to Calgary. They borrow an old sled from the Americans, and miraculously, they qualify. The night before their first official run, Therese is sitting in the Olympic Village in his room preparing. And this conversation takes place. Therese, you in here? Hey, coach. Oh, there you are. How you feeling? All right. Good, good. You all set to follow in your father's footsteps? I think so. You think so? All right. I know so. That's more like it. We're going to go grab a bite to eat. You want to join us? Nah. I didn't think so. I'll pick you something up. Hey, Coach. Yeah? I have to ask you a question. Sure. But don't have to answer if you don't want to. I mean, I want you to, but you can't. I understand. You want to know why I cheated, right? Yes, I do. That's a fair question. Quite simple, really. I had to win. You see, Doris, I'd made winning my whole life. And when you make winning your whole life, you have to keep on winning, no matter what. You understand that? No, I don't understand, Coach. You had two gold medals. You had it all. Therese, a gold medal is a wonderful thing. But if you're not enough without it, 
You'll never be enough with it. Powerful statement. A gold medal is a wonderful thing, but if you're not enough without it, you'll never be enough with it. And all the stuff that we spend so much time trying to accumulate, it's, it's wonderful stuff. But if we're not enough without it, we'll never be enough with it. And the only way to be enough is when Jesus Christ is at the center. Because Jesus Christ is the only, only thing that will never fail, never be destroyed, never disappear. And Christ alone brings us contentment. So what's the center of your life? What's the yearning, the deepest desire of your heart? Only in Christ is enough, enough. Gracious Father, forgive us and help us. Give us a new desire for you. Give us a new yearning for you. And in your grace, open our eyes to see that all that we yearn for, desire for contentment and peace, is found only in you. Through Jesus Christ.